also in the reign of Elizabeth I. There was a desperate attempt to re-Catholicize England. The Amada. Francis Drake, of course, thanked it. And then everything began focusing on Scotland as the vehicle. We ultimately have the rebellion of Bonnie Prince Charles. And we have the gunpowder plot. Okay. One thing after another. A long struggle. Always gone on. Under Elizabeth I, again, Puritanism begins to grow. Her own dynamism kept things intact. And a lot of things happened with Sir Walter Raleigh in the New World. He eventually is accused of popery and paper superstition and is decapitated. Cromwell comes out of the chaos that follows all of these things. By 1640, he winds up one of the wealthiest men in Cambridgeshire. <coughs> Although from the landed gentry, he was not very wealthy, but accumulated wealth over a period of time. During this period of financial hardship, when he's up and coming financially, he undergoes an evangelical conversion in which he comes to believe he was chosen for eternal salvation. And he began strengthening ties with people who shared his religious outlook. Most of his colleagues and himself believed that Charles I was not doing enough to protect England from Roman Catholicism. For the 11 years that Charles governed, he did so without calling a parliament. And when he was forced to do so in 1640, it was to raise money to put down a rebellion in Scotland. And Cromwell and his friends sought selection to the parliament. So the king was not really a Democrat, obviously. And there was this fear that because of this history of all what Rome was always doing, the government was taking their eyes off of Rome's devices. The Puritans said, never take your eyes off of Rome. They'll always get you when you don't expect it. And in that, they were right. They used this parliamentary issue to force a confrontation with Charles. They were certainly parliamentary in their own orientation, but their fear of Rome was what drove them. Cromwell became a member of what was known as the Long Parliament. He was from a group of members who were brandished with the title the Fiery Spirits. And he was prominent in debates, especially concerned about a Catholic conspiracy against the Protestant Church. Finally, in 642, 1642, the First Civil War begins. Cromwell takes up arms against the king, along with other members of parliament. He sees military action at a battle that was inconclusive at Edge Hill in October, and the following year he's made a colonel of a cavalry regiment where he learns the skills. In 1644, he achieves the rank of Lieutenant General, partly due to the fact that he was related to the Earl of Manchester, 
who was a pro-parliamentary aristocrat. And there was quite a military victory at Marsden Moor. Cromwell becomes known now in military circles. He made appeals, and he began to influence the leaders of the parliamentary army, which led to the establishment of something called the New Model Army. Under Cromwell's idea, you can believe anything you wanted, as long as you realize the danger was from the Roman Catholic Church. You could be Baptist, you could be Anglican, you could be Puritan, you could be any kind of Christian you wanted to, as long as you realized the threat of Rome. He was quite willing to be quite tolerant. The new model army kicks off in 1645. The commander of this army, however, is not Cromwell himself. He's the deputy commander and the commander of the cavalry under Sir Thomas Fairfax. However, it was with Cromwell's assistance and his lightning cavalry attack outflanking the cavaliers at Naseby that the final battle of the Civil War takes place. Cromwell uh, fought well and Charles escaped to Scotland. In 1647, the Scots returned Charles to England. Cromwell was now a hero among those who supported Parliament. Now remember, although he was pro-parliamentarian himself, that was not his main motive. His main motive was to protect England from the papacy. He's a hero. And he was one of the army leaders who supported the radical religious groups demanding that the established Church of England be abolished and replaced with something less, or, less formal, less orthodox in the Anglican Episcopal sense. So now he begins using his military power or influence to gain political influence. And he uses his political influence to influence people in matters of theology and religion. He wanted to reform the church further. He was ready to go back to civilian life. However, soldiers were worried about not getting their back pay and there was a fight within the parliament there was an issue that the Presbyterians who were in the House of Commons refused to pay the soldiers who fought in the war. Cromwell was brought in as a kind of mediator, but he threw his lot in with the army. He consistently used military power to influence political decisions. Although he was a parliamentarian and he always argued for parliamentary democracy, when push came to shove, he let you know who was holding the gun. And he always made sure the gun was loaded. He was sort of like Lee Kuan Yew in, in, in Singapore. You know, he, he can be very uh, accommodating up to a point. But don't go beyond that point or you'll find out who's got the power. However, he never levied that power with self-serving motives. He really did have godly ambitions and he really did care about the people and the country. There were people called the Levelers. They were a radical reformed group. They were libertarians. The parliamentarians were not true libertarians. These Levelers were the kind of people we would say now, in the, uh, after the Enlightenment, they would have said, you can do anything you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. 
You can make any decision you want and have anything you want and believe anything you want and do anything you want as long as it doesn't affect somebody else. That was their philosophy. It was their approach to religion. It was their approach to everything. Live and let live. It was a more radical idea of democracy than the Puritans were keen for. The Puritans had the idea of democracy must be based on biblical parameters. The levelers were like the people you see today. Now, this issue goes way back. You will find people today who try to uphold traditional family values, traditional biblical values on moral issues. There are others who say Parliament should not do that. Parliament should make no laws concerning things like homosexuality or pornography or intoxication or any of these things. These things are matters of personal choice and discretion. And the government has no right to interfere in people's lives as long as it doesn't affect other people. But of course, inevitably, it does affect other people. Alcohol abuse destroys families. <laughs> uh, a moral breakdown promotes crime. The breakdown of the family, of divorce, hurts, victimizes the children. Promote, predisposes children to juvenile delinquency. It does affect society. This whole conflict you see today, the culture war you see in the postmodern era, is again not new. It was something that Cromwell and the Puritans faced. Those who were radical libertarians and those who were parliamentary libertarians, who believed that the reins of liberty had to be governed by the teachings of Scripture. That was their view. And that goes on now. Again, with the breakdown, with the breakdown of the principle of being governed by men who are governed by God, you will see rule by decree. In the United States, for instance, the Supreme Court. Now Tony Blair wants to put a Supreme Court in England to replace the Lord Chancellor and to replace, to a degree, the Lords. Why? Because in America, the Supreme Court rules by decree. Whenever the Supreme Court has taken a side in a culture war, it always came down on the wrong side. In the 19th century, it decided that slavery was okay because the black person was subhuman with the Dred Scott decision. Now with Roe versus Wade in the 20th century, an embryo was less than human because the Supreme Court said so. Instead of interpreting the laws, they effectively redefine the laws. Nobody reading the American Constitution would interpret the Constitution as saying separation of church and state meant the separation of God and state. We the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect government, establish justice, etc. But it says we believe that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It was based on a belief in God. Nobody reading the works of any of the founding fathers of America, Jefferson or any of them, would say that these men were not theists and that separation of church and state meant separation of belief in God and state. Nobody could rationally say that. The only thing it meant in America was there would not be a state church like you have in England. There'd be no Erastianism. Like the, the Staten Church, the Lutheran Church is the state church of Germany, and the Church of England is the state church of 
a church being the state church of England, you wouldn't have that in America, that the government would not favor any one institution. That's all it meant. No. Now you have the latter-day levelers. People with a liberal agenda, of their own interpretation, who begin imposing it on others against the popular will. Just two weeks ago in America, court ordered the Supreme, the, 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 the Supreme Court of Alabama, the state of Alabama, removed the Ten Commandments from the rotunda. Now, more than 70% of the people in the United States wanted it there. <laughs> the polls say more than 70% of the people wanted it there. Well, the levelers said, no, take it out. Now, Cromwell tried to negotiate with the levelers at, at Putney, near where today, London. Okay. He successfully stood up to them and faced them down. But you know, <laughs> he was the man who believed what he said he believed. George Bush says he's a Christian. In Texas, everybody says they're a Christian on election time. Bush said nothing about the Ten Commandments being taken out of the, the court. Nothing. Now, that's America. We're talking about England. But it's the same thing. Now they want the Supreme Court in England. You are going to see the de-democratization of England through judicial fascism and through bureaucracy. The courts will dictate something as if God has spoken. Forget the fact that most people don't agree with it. Once the court dictates it, they have their own agenda. These are not new issues. New issues. The Puritans foresaw how this would happen. Unfortunately, we don't have people today with their foresight. In 1647, Charles refused to agree to the settlement demands made by Parliament, and he escaped to the Isle of Wight, and he made an alliance with the Scots, to invade England. This led to the beginning of the Second Civil War. Cromwell again unites the army to put down the attack which actually begins in Wales before defeating the Scots. So it goes back to the old Celtic Anglo-Saxon confrontations. Notice what happens. Ideally, a true faith in Jesus will bring harmony between people. But when that is subordinated or diluted with political considerations, it won't work. Now, the English Puritan Calvinists and the Scottish Presbyterian Calvinists had their first war. Cromwell wins at the Battle of Preston in the north of England in August of 1648. But this is only a foretaste of what would come later, something much worse. A wholesale bloodbath. The Second Civil War had a powerful impact on the nation and on Cromwell. Cromwell saw his initial victories as proof that he was chosen by God, as God's instrument of a great work. In some sense, he may have been. Cromwell always believed that the king should be restored to the throne with limited power, like what you see today, a constitutional monarchy or maybe something more than that, sort of like what Queen Victoria had. That was his initial belief. But with the Second Civil War, he realized this would never work. You can never trust Charles, you can never trust the monarch. That's the end of it. Now he agrees, the monarchy must go. The first time, we're willing to take you back. Let you have the throne, let you have some power, you will rule jointly with Parliament but after the Second Civil War, no. This was called Pride's Purge. 
and is kicked out, expelled from the commons, all those who, watched, who still wish to negotiate with the king. The ones who remained were known as the rump parliament, of all things. Cromwell remained in the north of England until the purge was over. He himself did not participate in it, but he sanctioned it. He had this way of saying, go do this, but he wouldn't do it himself, unless he had to. But when he had to, he would. He was committed to the king's trial and execution. And this took place on, on White, Whitehall, in, in Whitehall. He, he, right where it was, you can stand where, where they built the platform, decapitated him to this day. He was an active member of the High Court of Justice that was set up explicitly to put the king on trial. Charles' execution, he, Cromwell saw, as a divine judgment against the tyrant. Once he was dead, the Commonwealth of England was formed. No longer a kingdom, but a Commonwealth of England that would be governed by a council of states that included members of this remaining parliament. This council of state made up of members of, of the Rump Parliament and Cromwell's deputies. For the next two years, he remained a soldier in service to the state. But there were powerful enemies in Ireland and again in Scotland, where Charles II, the son of Charles I, was proclaimed king. We looked at this in the previous session. Not only that, but now the levelers organize along military lines and rise up against Cromwell. They form their own army of sorts. Cromwell crushed the leveler mutiny in the army who did not want to fight in Ireland and who believed their interests were being sold out. Now again, Cromwell was saying, wait a minute, if we don't go into Ireland, Ireland is Catholic and it's going to be used as a base by the papal forces of continental Europe to attack England. We cannot wait for them to attack us from Ireland. They always did that. That was back to, uh, to, to Philip II of Spain. This was the issue with Elizabeth when uh, Essex was sent to fight in Ireland because they, the Spanish wanted to use it to attack England. Ireland was always going to be a base used to attack us. Catholic, we cannot allow them to do that. Oh no, we should try not to. We should try to keep peace with Ireland. Again, the kind of thing you see today. Well, these guys have done this, 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 and this. Yes, but look what we did to them. That, 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 and that. Well, do you go in and clip Saddam Hussein before he develops a weapon of mass destruction and gives it to some terrorist organization? Or do you take the chance he won't do it? How do you negotiate with somebody like him? Well, to them it was the same kind of issue. How do you negotiate with the Catholic? How do you negotiate when, when the papacy said it was their duty to try to overthrow the British throne? Okay. Or the British, British uh, parliamentary government of, of, of Britain and of, of the Protestant government of Britain. This was the issue. You had liberals, the radical libertarians who didn't want to do it, and you had the parliamentarians who did. Now, again, it's much the same today. In the United States, and even in England to a degree, you'll see those who have this parliamentary idea of democracy saying, we've we, we got to clip these guys. We can't forget what they did, and if we let these people get these weapons, they'll attack us. We've got to go in and prevent this from happening. They've already attacked us enough time that we can't trust them anymore. Okay? But then the ultra-liberals, who, who do not have a theistic view of democracy, say, no, we shouldn't do that. 
it's unchristian, even though they don't believe in Christ. The same kind of issues you see now with Iraq, in Britain and America, the same kind of divisions is what you saw happening in Cromwell's day. We have to understand none of these things are new. None of these things are in any sense new. Cromwell now goes on the warpath. And to prevent the royalists of Scotland from invading England, Cromwell marches on Scotland with the advice of John Owen, his chaplain. And in Dunbar, September 3rd, 1650, exactly a year after he defeated the... a year later, he defeated the combined forces of the Scots and Charles II at Worcester. So he has a, a victory at Worcester in England... And now we have the victory at Dunbar in Scotland. What a spectacle it was where you have these English Puritan Calvinists, English Calvinists following the tulip and the Scottish Calvinists following the tulip massacring each other. I mean a total bloodbath. A total bloodbath. When they couldn't fight the Catholics, they turned on each other. There is something wrong with this. If they were both evangelical Protestants, and not only both evangelical Protestants, they were both of the same doctrinal school. They were both Calvinists. Straight down the line, reformed Calvinists. But Calvinism could not stop them from killing each other any more than Catholicism could stop Catholic countries from going to war. Well, the fact that neither Catholicism nor Calvinism, even when the rulers of the nations were devout, devoted to it, given the fact that their versions of Christianity couldn't stop war and genocide, tells me there's something wrong with Catholicism and something wrong with Calvinism. If they were, either of them, what, what they reported to be, they would have worked. But they didn't. Now, we're no longer talking about what Cromwell did in Ireland, where he made war not just against the armies or the Catholic clergy, he just destroyed the Catholics and drove them into... He basically perpetrated genocide and used starvation as a military weapon at Drogheda in these places. It's not just what happened with the Catholics. It's what he did to his fellow Protestants, his fellow evangelical Protestants, his fellow born-again Calvinist Protestants. Something is wrong with that ism. Again, I don't say these people had bad motives. But John Owen and Calvin, that's what they did. And it was absolutely absolutely malicious the way these armies behaved towards each other. They behaved worse than barbarians. What a bloodbath. One of the ugliest things that have ever happened on British soil. Cromwell wins. The Rump Parliament had good intentions, but Cromwell wanted it dissolved. He wanted a wholesale constitutional reform. He brings a troop of soldiers to the House of Commons and he evicts its members. <laughs> and he says he wants a new parliament, which was called initially 
the Barebone Parliament, that would be comprised of members of Calvinistic congregations, churches. So now you no longer had what you always had, the state controlling the church. Now you would have the church controlling the state. Calvinistic Reconstructionism. We will reconstruct society along biblical lines where the church will take over the government. That was in the first century that this happened. The most recent century this happened is the present one and the previous 20th one. Today, of course, it became mixed with the latter-day reign man-child movement and we call it Kingdom Now, Dominion Theology, <coughs> Triumphalism, the beliefs of the restoration movement of the Kansas City prophets of all this kind of stuff. Barney Coombs, this kind of stuff. It goes back to the Calvinists. The Calvinists invented it. Now we deal with this on a tape, the Twin Pillars of Madness. Has anyone heard that tape, the Twin Pillars of Madness? How many people heard it? Can you put your hand up, please? Only four, five, only half dozen. I thought more people heard it. I'll have to try to figure this out. All right. Again, what we're trying to do is understand how we got to where we are so we can figure out where we are going. Let's complete this and then I'll explain that. Cromwell, again, demands a written constitution, and when they come to him and try to make him king, he says no. He would only be Lord Protector. However, he had broad powers, and these broad powers affected, offended the Republicans who were in this protectable parliament in 1654. While Cromwell argued strongly in favor of constitution and democracy and things like this, Again, when push came to shove, he always let you know who was packing the peace. I'm not saying he was wrong in his motives. I'm not even saying he was always wrong in his actions. I'm just saying if he couldn't do it, <laughs> is it really possible to bring the kingdom of God to earth? Not before the millennial reign of Christ. The Puritans went too far. They did the same thing that the Catholics did in the Middle Ages. The same thing that began with Constantine and Augustine. Trying to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He brought in regulations. 
for stricter morals, again influenced something by Calvin's Geneva. The Christian Taliban. The Globe Theater was closed. All theaters were closed. Most sports, any form of entertainment, most culture was outlawed. He went around destroying the glass windows, the stained glass windows from the Renaissance if one cathedral survived. He did a Savernova. Destroy all the idols and icons. Instead of having theaters and sports for public entertainment, we will have floggings. Witch burnings. Hangings. That's what people came to see. instituted was the witch hunter general Cotton Mathers now again it did not begin this way under James before Charles came to power the Puritans themselves had been the victim of persecution They were known at that time as the separatists. Some went to Holland and then to Massachusetts. In Massachusetts, the same thing happened in Salem with the witch burnings. It became so decrepit that other Puritans broke with it, especially Baptistic Puritans, such as uh, Thomas Hooker and uh, Roger Williams, who founded the American colonies, later states of Massachusetts, uh, of Connecticut and Rhode Island. They didn't want to be part of this Salem crowd. These were people who themselves were persecuted for trying to uphold biblical truth. But once they got in power themselves, they became what the Old Testament in Hebrew calls Evid Kimloach. When a slave becomes a master, he becomes worse than the old master, just like the book Animal Farm. Women were usually the victims of the worst oppression, particularly the accusations of being witches. The Puritans believed fervently that because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church and Christ corrects the church, you should correct your wife with beating. You can flog her, providing the switch was not thicker than your thumb. They actually believed they encouraged husbands to flog their wives, and if your wife still was insubmissive, bring it to the elders and they put her in public pillories. There was a lot of this kind of stuff. People missed church, they'd arrest them. They'd publicly flog them. Now again, Cromwell improved things like education, health care. He improved a lot of things. But the Taliban mentality took over. Holiness comes from a closer walk with the Lord. 
Obviously, immorality should be outlawed. You can outlaw immorality. You can, legis- you can legislate against immorality, but you cannot legislate morality. Hear what I said? We can legislate against immorality, but you cannot legislate morality. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. <laughs> and so now you have a Protestant version of the Dark Ages. All culture is suppressed. However, on the military front, he was successful. The Spanish are defeated in the military victory by England in the West Indies, and Britain gets things like Jamaica. Britain, England becomes a feared military power on the continent, and Britain is able to help refugees, support against Christians who are refugees who are being persecuted in Europe. This goes on. A lot of good things happen. But then there's the downside. To understand what is happening now, we have to understand what happened then. There were six people I counted who heard this. I didn't want to have to do this, but I'm going to have to fit it in. The twin pillars of Madness. Let's take a look at the craziest stuff that people like myself have warned against in recent years. Let's take a look at the craziest stuff. Let's take a look at those who preach this. The prosperity gospel. There was something that came out of the influences of the Puritans in England called the Protestant ethic. The main social commentator who wrote about it is Max Weber. In the Dark Ages, under Roman Catholicism, there was one worldview. Upstairs, downstairs, copied from the pagan Greeks. The Greeks had the view, everything here was the domain of a lesser god, everything spiritual and ethereal was the domain of the true god. This came into the church. The Puritans rightly said, no, God has to sanctify everything that's here. So while the Catholic Church would say things like, the only good thing about marriage is having children who will be celibate. That was the teaching of Augustine. The purpose of marriage is to populate convents and monasteries. In order to serve God, you have to be uh, in the clergy. Okay? Well, the Puritans reacted radically against this. No, do all things to the glory of God. A baker, a dentist, anybody can serve God. Okay, that was their view. They were right. Okay. But, they understood idle hands of the devil's workshop. 
So they preached being industrious so people would not use their leisure time in modern terms, we would say watching unedifying programs on television. When you apply biblical principles in your work, trade, or profession, and when the world of commerce is regulated by a government that is trying to adhere to biblical principles, something is going to happen. Wealth will increase. Society will get more prosperous because it's living by biblical principles. This is a biblical truth perverted by the mammon-worshipping likes of Copeland, Hagen, etc. We know that. But this idea of taking the verse, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. Biblically, that is to be understood chiefly in a premillennial context. The meek shall inherit the earth. No, to the Puritans, that was now. We can do this to the Irish. We can take their land. It's good agricultural land because of the Gulf Stream, Ireland, anything will grow there. Look how green it is. That's ours. They're the Catholics. They're the wicked. We're the righteous. These ideas were infused into the Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa. We can take the black man's land. It was the same thing. Slavery with the American South. Who invented this prosperity gospel? Was it invented by Kenneth Hagin? No. That man did not have the brains to come up with anything. He was ignorant. He was an unlearned man. He was really an ignorant person. He was a very ignorant person. Copeland, forget about it. Marilyn Hickey, Benny Hinn, they did not invent these things. These things were invented by the Reformed Calvinists, especially the Puritans. Where did they get it? The Puritan Calvinists. Let's take something else I've warned about. Hyper-demonology. C.F. Lewis rightly said, Satan's two tricks, ignore him or become obsessed with him. Instead of people taking responsibility for their own actions before the Lord and emphasizing things like pick up your cross and live a crucified life, it becomes get the demon cast out. He has a demon, she has a demon. Then it's, the Lord showed me you have a spirit of greed. The Lord showed me you have a spirit of lust. The Lord showed me you have a spirit of murder. The Lord showed me... Whatever. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying there's not a gift of discernment of spirits and that stuff can't happen. It can. But a lot of what you see people saying that is obviously not true. It's from the futility and deception of their own mind. There is a gift of discernment of spirits. But most of what we see is not the authentic gift in operation, even though I have seen the authentic gift in operation. This hyper-demonology
Suppose on the basis of somebody saying you have a spirit of this, of witchcraft. Now the Bible says, well, the testimony of two is correct. So if two people say it, it must be true. This was called spectral evidence. If somebody was to bring a charge against you, the Lord showed me you're a witch. The Lord showed me you're a warlock. You have a spirit of witchcraft. And one or two other people stood up in the congregation and said, yes, I had a dream and the Lord showed me you were a witch. You would be arrested. Most of the victims were women, not all. Now, when a minister, when a preacher stood up and said, this is crazy, this is judgmentalism, this is not what the Bible means, then you're part of the coven, you're part of the conspiracy. They'd arrest the minister. In Massachusetts, they hung him. He was just a shepherd trying to protect his flock from kooks. In jurisprudence, you have forensic evidence, you have prima facie evidence, you have corroborative evidence. Well, the Puritans have spectral evidence. The Lord showed me. You've got two or three people saying the Lord showed them. That's it, you're a witch. Well, we need one definitive proof before we burn you or hang you. Cut a hole in the ice, we'll do a Zwingli. Tie her to the end of a pole. Put her under there. If she drowns, well, she was innocent. If she doesn't, she must be using magical powers. She's a witch. Burn her. This happens under the Puritans, both in England and in Massachusetts. Where do you get this crazy hyper-demonology, this Peter Harlebin lunacy, this Bill Sapritsky lunacy, this Hell Al Grange lunacy? Where do you get this nuttiness? Who invented it? Did hyper-charismatics like Bill Sapritsky or Peter Harlebin invent it? Or that other guy who wrote the book Pigs in the Parlor? No, they didn't invent it. It was invented by the Puritan Calvinists. Then there is Kingdom Now. Radical post-millennialism. We're going to conquer the whole world for Christ before He comes. Set up His kingdom, then He'll come. He's not coming with the victorious church. It's been rapture and resurrection. He's coming for one. That has established His kingdom dominion. Who invented this? John Wimber? No. Gerald Coates? No. Austin Sparks? No. It was invented by the Puritan Calvinists. 
and much more. Is charismania lunacy? Of course it is. Of course it is. Of course it's lunacy. But charismania is not based on any form of exegesis. Or even exegesis to a degree. It's based on mystical subjective revelation. It's based on Gnosticism and emotion. We all know hyper-charismatics are kooks. We all know that. If you didn't know that, you wouldn't be here. We all know hyper-charismatics and extreme Pentecostals are kooks. We all know that. Now, charismatics don't have any doctrine of their own. They wouldn't know how to formulate it. They're too biblically ignorant. But they need a theology. They need doctrine. Where does a kook get their doctrine? A kook gets their doctrine from another kook. <laughs> As Jeremiah said, they steal, steal my words from each other. Of course, charismaniacs are loony. So are hyper-Calvinists. It's the twin pillars of madness. Even hyper-Pentecostals wouldn't hang and burn people, because the Lord showed me. Even hyper-Pentecostals wouldn't raise armies and go to war and kill other Christians. Even the biggest prosperity preacher, they might exploit and prey on the poor, but they wouldn't invade a country and take their land and make them slaves. It takes a Calvinist to do that. Now, believe it or not, in some respects, the Puritans were not hyper-Calvinists. Or, or at least to say, there were people who were more Calvinistic than they were. They had a somewhat more balanced view of the idea of election than some Calvinists did. However, one of their saving graces was that they were tolerant of other evangelicals. There were people who did not believe in this, who the Puritans didn't bother. They were not people who looked to the Reformation, but they rather looked to the pre-Reformation evangelical movements going back to people like Huss. These were originally called the Anabaptists, then simply called the Baptists. In England, the most famous one of this time was undoubtedly John Bunyan. He wrote a number of things, but most people are only familiar with two of the things which he wrote. They're familiar, of course, with the Pilgrim's Progress, and they're familiar with his book on Holy War. He's buried in Bunhill Field, across the street from John Wesley's house, right opposite Daniel Defoe, the guy who wrote uh, Robinson Crusoe. And John Owen is buried right next to them. They're all together. Because uh, after the Restoration, nonconformists couldn't be buried in consecrated ground, so they put them all in what was then called the Bone Hill. Now it's called Bunhill Fields. 
off City Road in London. Interesting cemetery to visit. Not that I like cemeteries, but to see so many great preachers and Christian writers interred in one place, waiting for the resurrection. It is an interesting place to visit. Mr. Bunyan, in 1653, he joined the church in Bedford, where he worshipped. But at the restoration in 1660, when Charles II comes back, the pastor of Bunyan's church was dead. Their building was taken from them and given back to the established church. On November 12th, he was arrested for unlicensed preaching. He was arrested again in 1661, and he refused to stop doing it, and he was kept in prison with one short interval until 1672. That's a long time in jail. The Bedfordshire Gal, which is located, the, the gal's not there, but the bridge is, is there. Near the bridge, where the bridge is still there. And he spent a lot of time weaving laces. Tagged laces, he called it. He decided to break up the monotony by writing. Now this is a man who saw a lot of personal tragedy in his life with the death of children and all sorts. And then persecution. And of course, he wrote what, in my view, is the greatest book ever written after the Bible itself. I have never read anything that I have enjoyed and been blessed by and amazed by than the Pilgrim's Progress. The only thing I've read that has ever impressed me more than that book is the Bible itself. Oh, we have, we have, if you want the Pilgrim's I think every Christian should read the Pilgrim's Progress. You have more than one. I have a tape where they put it in the, in the car when I'm driving. I think every, if you haven't read the Pilgrim's Progress and you're a saved Christian, get a copy and read it. I don't think there should be any of us who haven't read that book. After the Bible, that is the best book I ever read. There are four or five books in addition to Scripture I wish every Christian could read. The screw tape letters is one, but the first one is the Pilgrim's Progress. And so Mr. Bunyan writes, in 1672 he's finally released from jail, and he's chosen minister of the community church at Bedford, which again was a Baptist congregation at that time. Uh, they were not all like the Puritans. There were Baptists who were much more biblical. The Baptists tended to be too much the other way. They didn't believe that Christians should be involved in government or be magistrates of law at all. They believed in total separation, almost like the Jehovah's Witnesses would. Now, the reason they were that way goes back to the pre-Reformation Europe, where the government was an, inst was, was an instrument of the papacy. So, to be part of the government meant to be part of the papacy. Or, in pagan Rome, to be part of the government meant to be part of imperial Rome with its, with its false religion that persecuted the church. They inherited this legacy. They were too much the other way. The Puritans were this way. The Baptists were this way. The Puritans said, we should control the government. The Baptists said, we should have nothing to do with it. In fact, there's a via media. Paul and his epistles wrote about those who were in government and how they should behave as Christians. How we should be salt and light in it. The lesson to be learned is when you take a truth to an unbalanced extreme, that truth will become an error. When you take a truth to an unbalanced extreme, that truth will become an error. The Bible does not simply say the Word of God is the truth. We're told in the Psalms, the 
sum of thy word is true. So the restoration comes. Charles II is back. Eventually they dig up Cromwell's corpse and put his skull on a spike on uh, London Bridge. <laughs> That's exactly what the popes did. Dig up the bones of, of people like Wycliffe and put them on public display and put them on trial posthumously. Same craziness. Same lunatic reform one. <laughs> they weren't doing the same things. In the continental Europe, the Catholic Church persecuted the Jews and the Protestants did. Luther's followers. Crazy. Reform what? Sad legacy. Sad? Sad. But something we need to learn from. Again, these were good people under difficult circumstances. In difficult circumstances, the best of people with the best of motives can make some tragic mistakes. They emphasize some aspects of Scripture to the negation of others. Instead of taking a balanced overview. Where the Puritans and Covenanters went wrong. Where the Baptists went wrong. Was that way. Emphasizing certain passages and teachings of Scripture to the negation of others. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. However, we must understand what he meant by thy word is truth. He was referring back to what it said in the Old Testament. The sum of thy word is truth. When a church goes off, when a movement goes off, it's always because they emphasize certain doctrines to the negation of others. Whenever that happens, you're going to have a problem. There is only one central truth upon which all other truths must be predicated. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ coming again. If you take any other truth and make that central, that truth will become an error. We've seen this time and time again. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are a truth. But when you make that the central truth instead of Christ, you wind up with charismania. The truth becomes an error. The prophetic purposes of God for Israel and the Jews are a biblical prophetic truth. But there are people who come to meetings like this, to them, that is the central truth. It is only when you understand Israel in light of Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ coming again, is Israel in its right perspective. The truth becomes an error. You wind up with the Christian embassy or bridges for peace or some heresy. It doesn't matter what the doctrine is. How did these men, godly men under difficult circumstances, go off? Emphasizing some doctrine to the negation of others. If they can make that kind of mistake, so can we. However, if we can learn from those kinds of mistakes, so much the better.
We've been looking at the attempts of Roman Catholicism to re-Catholicize these islands. We looked at Whitby, Mary I, the Babington Plot, Armada, the Gunpowder Plot, Bunny Prince Charles. A popular mistake is to add to the list of Whitby and Mary I. And the uh, Babington plot and the Armada and the gunpowder plot as in Guy Fawkes and Bunny Prince Charles. To add William of Orange versus James the Second, as in William and Mary versus James the Second. In Northern Ireland, they would swear by it. They would say that is the main one. In fact, it is only a half truth. James the Second was a Protestant who reverted to Roman Catholicism. However, there was much political intrigue going on in continental Europe. When William of Orange fought James at the Battle of the Boyne in Northern Ireland, there were Roman Catholics who fought against James, who fought with King William. In fact, there were Roman Catholics who came as far away as Holland to fight with King William against James in 1690. What they don't usually tell you on the 12th of July is that there was a papal per diem in Vienna when they were ringing bells. The Catholic cathedrals were ringing bells celebrating the victory of William over James. You go to Belfast, it's always 1690, we'll are, no surrender, we will maintain. <laughs> it's always that stuff. Get the drums out. Pound it on the drums with the bowl of hats. It is only half a truth. Basically, you had two foreign kings, one English and one Dutch, fighting on Irish soil. The English and Dutch made friends a long time ago but the Irish are still fighting over it. Well, they will all tell you about 1690 and crossing the Boyne. For some reason, the people with the bowler hats pounding on the drums on the 12th of July don't want to tell, tell you or talk too much about the rebellion a hundred years later of 1790 to 1793 when the Presbyterian Protestants rebelled against the English crown. They'll always tell you, for God and Ulster were defending the British crown, they fought the crown. 
Irish Republicanism had its forerunner in something known as the Home Rule Movement. The Irish suffered terribly under the English. The English were known as the Ascension. But so in time did the Presbyterians, who were of Scottish Celtic descent. Again, the old rivalries that went all the way back 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries come back again, where it was Celt fighting Anglo-Saxon. The Lords. The founders of what became Republicanism, Sir Isaac Booth, pronounced Booth. A Protestant. Wolf Tone, a Protestant. Somebody most people have known as the author of Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift, a Protestant clergyman and evangelical. The man who inspired the song, The Wearing of the Green, whose legacy inspired The Wearing of the Green, Theobald Nepertandi, Protestant. I met with Nepertandi and he took me by the hand. He asked, how's dear old Ireland and how does it stand? The most distressful country you have ever seen. They're hanging men and women for the wearing of the green. That's the marching song of the Republicans. Zeppelin Tandy was a Protestant. Now, the Protestants don't like to admit this, and the Catholics don't like to admit this. Much like the Jews don't like to admit Jesus is Jewish, and neither did the so-called Gentile Christians. <laughs> Another one? Charles Parnell. Charles Parnell. Every single one of them was a Protestant. Every single one of them. It was not the Irish who began the Republican movement. It was not the Catholics. It was Irish Protestants. Mainly Presbyterians. And the English responded by hanging them. They hung the Presbyterian clergyman, Reverend Henry McCracken. He said, we must write some things that are wrong. 1793, they strung him up. 
It is unbelievable when you look at the actual history of what happened, how people can think the way they do. To kill over a truth is one thing. To kill over a lie is another. This is documented history. It's irrefutable. Yet, the Fedians, the Catholic Republicans don't want to know it. And of course the Orangemen don't want to know it. I mean, they know it, but they don't want to know it. What a strange situation. It was not until much later that you had the first major Catholic figure. Daniel O. Connor, yeah? He inspired Lenin. Lenin imitated the mass political rally tactics from O'Connor. The first founder of the IRA, the real man who made it happen, would have had nothing to do with what the IRA is now. What the IRA is now is the provisional IRA. The official IRA was quite different. Michael Collins. Collins was killed by his fellow Republicans, ones who pushed the Roman Catholic agenda. Collins wanted a separation of church and state in Ireland where Catholics and Protestants would be co-equal. That was with the idea of their flag. The orange, the green, Catholic and Protestant with peace in between. But religion would be a matter of personal conscience and choice. That's what Collins and his people wanted. What the IRA is now is something entirely different than what it was then. What it is now are basically gangsters operating under a political religious banner. That's not the way it was. By the time Catholics got involved in it, it was a secularist movement. And it was founded, not by Catholics, but by Protestants, mainly Presbyterians and some Anglicans. Every single founder of this movement was a Protestant. Now, if you try to tell the people in the Free Presbyterian Church or the Orange Men, the Orange Orders pounded on the drum this, they don't want to hear it. Republicanism was founded by Protestants. And if you were to go up the Shank Hill Road and say that, people would be very angry at you. <laughs> if you go up the Falls Road and say it, they'd be angry at you. There is one thing that the Catholics and Protestants of Northern Ireland will agree on today. They both choose to believe the same lie of history. They both choose to believe the same lie because it is convenient. They'd rather talk about 1690 instead of the real uprising of 1790 because it's fueled, it's fueled by bigotry, not by reason or what actually happened. In this mess, there were people who tried to preach the gospel in Northern Ireland. One was quite successful, named Billy Nichols. He was quite an evangelist in his era. John Wesley made 18 trips to Ireland. And John Wesley said, if this is the way that Protestants treat Catholics, it's no wonder these people don't want to get saved. That's what John Wesley said. 
If this is the way Protestants treat Catholics, it's no wonder these people are unconvertible. Okay. The ugliness of Northern Ireland is incredible. The bigotry is endemic. But when one goes back and looks at the Christian history, and in fact just the history of what actually transpired and how these things came about, you realize that what you see now is based on an utter perversion of what really happened. It was just not the way they are telling us. We're not even being told half the story. A myth has been fabricated by both sides. Now, what is really strange is there is something else that will unite both Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland other than the lie they mutually agree to accept. That is, if anyone had a half a brain, if anyone had a quarter of a brain, if anyone had a tenth of a brain, they would realize the real threat to the Protestants of Northern Ireland is not Dublin, and the real threat to the Catholics of Northern Ireland is not London. The real threat to both of them is again Brussels. If you are going into a non-democratic federal Europe with an ecumenical church, both sides are concerned with the wrong opponent. The Pope is getting in the back door. He's not going to get in through Dublin. He doesn't have to. He'll get in through Europe. He'll get in through Europe. Now, it's strange, but both Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, and the Unionist parties are anti-Europe. If they could just put their bigotry aside for ten minutes and realize on the issues that are going to matter most in the future, they're standing on common ground, it would be remarkable. But they don't want to do that. Instead, the hatred and killing goes on. I'm not holding my breath over peace in the Middle East, although the Antichrist will bring a false peace. And neither am I holding my breath for Northern Ireland. There are too many criminal elements with a vested interest in seeing it perpetuated. Nonetheless, the history of injustice in Northern Ireland and in Ireland generally was not only directed against Catholics, but also against working class and poor Protestants. Both were victims of political manipulation and economic injustice. To the point again where Wesley was just appalled at the situation in Ireland even in his day. What was his day like? Let's understand the next phase. We've looked at the early phase from the primordial church up to Whitby. Then we looked at the Middle Ages in the second session. Then we looked at the Reformation. Then we looked at the post-Reformation, the Puritan era, 